This is a Federal News Network podcast. That recent Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee report we talked about last segment on federal cybersecurity has cyber experts worried. It found that seven departments haven't fixed serious deficiencies, the same committee identified two years earlier. To talk about what it means in terms of spying, Tom Temin talked with Feng Zhang, a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. You referenced the report that came out two years ago, which shows that all eight agencies are failing, and this time it's seven, so it's very marginally better. But there's actually another report produced by the Government Accountability Office, GAO. So they did an audit in 2010 in which they found out over 3,000 items that they said uh, federal agencies need to fix. Guess how many are still there? Ten years later, there are still over 7,000 that are not fixed. So the progress is very slow. But on the other hand, what we have seen on the China side is that not long after China joined the WTO, China has been in the process of institutionalizing some of the bad practices into the core of their industrial strategy, including cyber espionage. For example, when they hack American federal agencies, the purposes are often to benefit their own industrial policy, right? so to steal intellectual properties. And so all of these are uh, behaviors that we saw in the past, but they were more or less passively allowed. But now it's more toward being uh, sponsored by the government and to benefit the entire Chinese economy. So that's the approach that's very concerning. It's not unlike what we suspect of Russia, too, for that matter. Right. But I think there's uh, some key difference between Russian hacks and Chinese hacks in the sense that the Russian economy, is, the power is just not there. right? But the Chinese economy has the possibility, even with or without the intention, at least it has the possibility to threaten the U.S.-led liberal world order. So that's the difference I see between Russian and Chinese hacks. Sure, yeah. A hundred million people versus a billion people. That makes a big difference on the world stage. And what is the general methodology of this type of espionage? Because they could simply use phishing, which no cybersecurity measures can help necessarily if someone voluntarily gives information or passwords thinking that the email's coming from a trusted source. Then there's old-fashioned hacking, getting through the network and getting into the system and giving yourself administrative rights and so forth. How do they generally do it, those types of attacks that originate in China? I think the techniques so far that we have seen in reporting seems to be quite diverse. For example, the Chinese state-sponsored hackers, they went after NASA. And the way they did it is actually through one employee who obviously violating corporate laws, right? So they tried to use computers at NASA to mine Bitcoin. And so that gave an opening for the Chinese hackers. So I think there are various types and various techniques, and it's hard to say, which actually makes it very important for federal agencies to share information among them, to learn about the patterns of Chinese hacks. Plus, it doesn't give them any room to leave any part of cybersecurity unattended to. If the attacks have all this diversity, then you've got to be ready on all fronts. Right. And it has to be the norm anyway, right? Because technology is always evolving and there are uh, loopholes in the uh, cyber security world where it, it just comes up and then it provides new opportunities for bad actors. It's a very constantly dynamically changing world. We're speaking with Weifang Zhang. He's senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And so the Senate committee recently, in the past couple of weeks, made some recommendations for an oversight structure. 
and for reporting structure. But, of course, it can't prescribe people to do your patches on Tuesday and fix your buffer overflows on Thursday, this kind of prescriptive stuff. So what should agencies actually be doing at this point? I think there's one effort that comes out from the new Biden administration that's promising, which is that the newly named office, the National Cyber Director. Now, that office is not funded yet. It's part of the infrastructure bill, and we'll see what happens. But at least that effort, it's uh, going toward the direction of coordinating among federal agencies. And so that, I assume, will include, for example, prescribing rules uh, regarding whether you should retire your legacy systems and by when you should install security patches. Those efforts, I think, would be low-hanging fruits, and that would fix a lot of problems. Now, the idea of the patches and so forth and keeping up with what's on your network and your routers, that seems to perpetrate the old model of computing where every agency had a data center and it had a network and it had terminals and PCs, etc. The cloud now is really where so much more work is going on. These are commercial entities that have their own interest in being cyber secure, but it does complicate the picture for the customer agency. Right, right. And it's very important to know that because different federal agencies, they have information about American citizens in different dimensions, right? So maybe HSS has some part of information about you, Tom, something that concerns the HSS, right? And then DOD may have something else. And so it's started that to make sense that they have their own cybersecurity system to guard their own part of the data about American citizens. But then from the hacker's perspective, if you could get your hands on, say, a couple of agencies, you could potentially triangulate and learn a lot more about American people. You don't necessarily need to hack all the agencies. And so that calls for ever more importance in you know, coordinating these agencies and make sure that they have the uniform standard because it doesn't take all of them to lose the Americans' information. Does your research or your sense of things tell you that the United States is also spying on China, or should it? That I do not know. It's not part of my research. I guess it's part of the toolbox of the U.S. government, because one of the responses that were being discussed in terms of like how do we get back at China was whether we should hack them back, right? So I think technically speaking, the U.S. government has the capabilities. Now, the U.S. policymakers seem more reluctant to hack back at China than they would have back at Russians which I suspect is mainly driven by economic considerations, right? Because we are more engaged economically with China and the stake is just much higher than with the Russian economy. And all of this raises the importance of supply chain security because so much of defense work and other spy craft is done by contractors and they have a lot of information that is simply that of the federal government and would be strategically important in the wrong hands. So the CMMC program is on pause for review, but in general, it seems like that's a well-placed concern is for the government to really put some pressure on the suppliers to keep themselves secure. Absolutely. I think this points to a much larger problem, in my opinion, about U.S.-China economic engagement in the past 20 years, especially since China joined the WTO. Because the way we have been dealing with China was that you remember when China first joined the WTO, but people have the belief that it might not only reform the economy in a more pro-market way, but it might at some point turn into a liberal democracy in the future, right? So it will no longer be a communist threat to the rest of the world. So what we didn't see actually was that it didn't go that way, right? So it's surprising to U.S. policymakers. It's surprising to many people in China, too, 
uh, where I grew up, and I've seen people back in the early 2000s being very optimistic about the country going to a more open direction. It didn't turn out that way for those people in China either. And the problem now I see about U.S. policymaking is that because we have been dealing with China with too much trust, that's not warranted. So it's as if you are owning a house without the home insurance, and all of a sudden the house catches on fire, right? And all of a sudden you realize that you don't have remedies. So all these supply chain security issues is, in my view, the realization that all of a sudden we need a home insurance plan. So let's get our plan together in case something goes wrong again in the future. We have remedies. Wai Feng Zhang is senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. You can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them 
I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from 
talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.